All right, Olivia, we're back at it. Guess who's back? Back again. That's us. So we're things back. are things are a little different because uh, we are uh, still quarantined. Uh, we know we have listeners, uh, you know, a lot of particularly Scandinavian listeners, uh, Sweden, for example, uh, Germany, Netherlands, uh, Finland. Uh, we don't know how these... I know Sweden is handling things differently as far as quarantine, but uh, we're in the mid-Atlantic region, uh, northeast. Um, we're, we're reasonably far from New York, but we, we are still in a... a kind of state of lockdown um so what we're doing is uh we are we've arranged so that we can still get good audio quality to podcast with each other remotely uh using different uh microphones uh but so we're on the phone and we're on microphones and that's sort of how we're working this out but to begin we're just going to be me and olivia yep yep so there's that all right like the two guys on the muppets <laughs> okay. It's just us in the in the audience. Oh yeah, and the commenting audience. to ourselves. Yeah, but usually, yeah, the, the, there would be some sort of show for us to comment on. We are the show. Plus, we're the Ooh. comments. We're everything. Yeah, yeah. We're the whole yeah. deal. Uh, so uh, let's see. But you're gonna like this, Olivia. We're talking about Lucifer's covert operations today. Like spies. Yeah, like spies. For Lucifer. Yeah, spies on behalf of Lucifer. Like Carmen San Diego, but spies. Carmen Satan. Wasn't she a spy? Oh, oh, we did it. We did it. <laughs> all right, let me we get into this. <laughs> put it all together. All right, so you remember how this goes? I'm going to do the introduction first. Oh, man. Okay. It's yeah. been a while. I'm going to introduce, and then we uh, we got to do the uh, you, you, I talk, and then you talk. And yeah. Then we pledge. Yeah. And then uh, what you call it? Uh, you, you say plug. Plug. Don't do it yet. Oh, I plugged it back up. If you listen to a conspiracy theorist, any conspiracy theorist podcast on the Illuminati, you'll hear that there is a secret occult agenda behind much of what the Illuminati is attempting to achieve. The nature of that agenda is not especially clear, but involves replacing Christian belief with something far more nefarious and temporal, something like a cult of Lucifer. One of the most significant progenitors or spiritual fathers of our modern podcasting and YouTubing conspiracy theorists is Milton William Cooper, author of the apocalyptic Behold a Pale Horse, published in 1991. The book is, essentially, a collection of documents grouped together in a way that suggests the existence of conspiracies of various shapes and sizes. Cooper also broadcast a shortwave radio program popular among the radical militia set called The Hour of the Time. In 1998, Cooper was charged with tax evasion and became convinced that he was being targeted by then-President Bill Clinton and the Internal Revenue Service, and he vowed that they would never take him alive. After a series of armed disputes with neighbors in Eager, Arizona, the Apache County Sheriff's Office attempted to arrest Cooper, but he resisted, shooting a sheriff's deputy in the head. Cooper was killed in the exchange of gunfire, an event that has fed inevitable conspiracies about a plot to murder one of America's most famous conspiracy theorists. An underlying theme in Cooper's book is the existence of a Luciferian plot, a lot like Nesta Helen Webster's, which Cooper first identifies as the Brotherhood of the Snake. But unlike Webster, Cooper doesn't spend much time at all tracing the long history of the Luciferians, only alluding to their longevity. The mystery is that religion is but a tool to control the masses. Knowledge or wisdom is their only god, through which man himself will become god. 
The snake and the dragon are both symbols of wisdom. Lucifer is the personification of the symbol. It was Lucifer who tempted Eve to entice Adam to eat of the Tree of Knowledge, and thus free man from the bonds of ignorance. The warship, a lot different from study, of knowledge, science, or technology is Satanism in its purest form. And its god is Lucifer. Its secret symbol is the all-seeing eye in the pyramid. These Lucifer worshippers scheme to achieve the annihilation of Christians, Jews, and atheists, presumably by replacing their belief systems with Luciferian worship. An early iteration of the group, the Roshanaya, also known as the Order of the Quest, preached that there was no heaven, no hell, only a spirit state completely different from life as we know it. Spirits would continue to be powerful on Earth if they were members of the Order. The medieval Islamic assassins, Knights Templar, and Adam Weishaupt's Illuminati were, or perhaps are, all branches of this Illuminati. Helena Blavatsky, Alistair Crowley, and Alice Bailey are regularly invoked as agents of this conspiracy, operating, ironically, right out in the open, because we know all their names, and they wrote about literally everything they did in books they published for anyone to read. <laughs> While the details of the conspiracy differ from theorist to theorist, and there will be plenty of time for us to wander down those rabbit holes, we are going there right now. The basic points are that the occultist wants humanity to replace God with Satan by worshipping the things of this earth, what Cooper means when he talks about supplanting God with knowledge, science, and technology. And also, point two, initiating a program to transform humans into their own gods. The humble, awestruck love of an incomprehensible divinity is replaced by the deification or apotheosis of the human occultist. So what do you think of that? You want to talk about snakes or something? Do I want to talk about snakes or something? The Brotherhood of the Snake? That is a pretty sick name, I'm not going to lie. But you're not going to... You know, I feel like the most interesting part was the, it sounds kind of like Satanism a little bit. Yeah, you're right. Just a tiny bit, like a little, a dash of Satan. You mean the, the deification of the self, human becoming their own god? Yeah, like I guess it's more like Levian than anything. I guess I shouldn't just say Satanism. But... I, and I think Crowley has a lot of influence on this ideology, but Blavatsky yeah. and Crowley are very different people. Blavatsky with her Eastern ethic and reincarnation and all this, like that's a that is not at all this ideology. Like putting them together, well, with Alice Bailey, who was a student of of Blavatsky, it just doesn't make any sense. Basically, what's going on here is the conspiracy theorist is taking occultism and saying that satanism equals occultism levee satanism right which is even a right so yeah it's a, it's sort of like saying the seventh day adventists are the christians or the mormons are are the christians oh well, look at those mormons mm. look at the stuff they believe look at those seventh they, day adventists all christians are like that all of christians yeah yeah it doesn't make sense it's painting with too broad a brush the occult takes offense my name is Rob C. Thompson, Supreme Hierophant of our Secret Order of Alchemical Actors and a Doctor of Things Occult. I am joined, as usual, by Olivia Literal, our Grand Master, and just Olivia Literal, our Grand Master of the Order. Let's do that pledge. Let's see how this goes. Olivia and I practice this a bit. Let's see how we do. Oh, God. Okay. Ready? Deep breath. Yeah. 
We the members, members of, of the, the secret, secret order, order of, of alchemical, alchemical actors, actors do solemnly commit, commit ourselves, ourselves to, to a, a full, full and honest, honest telling, telling of the history, of the, history <laughs> of, the occult, of the occult as far as, far as, as we, we know, it. know it. I was trying uh, so hard to stay on beat with you and it just does not happen. It wasn't so bad. It could have been much worse. <laughs> I felt like we were like feeding each other work like i don't know this, if people are listening for the first time they're gonna think we are bad at pledging they're gonna think we might have had a stroke honestly because <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty ugh. let's talk about our patrons oh you gotta open up those plugs plug 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 all right let's talk about our patrons we're gonna give them the whole plug deal here uh or at least most of the plug deal so here's the situation we understand 36 million unemployed in the united states uh global uh, you know, economic recession, uh, perhaps worse. It's tough times. So we are yeah. very grateful uh, for the folks who are able to contribute. Uh, and, and we're looking forward to sharing their names with you in, in just a moment. Uh, and for all of our patrons who are able to hang in, if you're still employed and, and you're able to do that, that's fantastic. Um, uh, we really appreciate that. It's important. Um, it's important to keep our work going because uh, the podcast is actually getting a bit more expensive uh, so that we can yeah. manage th- this COVID situation. Uh, we need a bit more equipment um, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and also access to libraries and stuff is a bit harder. Uh, so, so there's a lot of different things that we're having to mitigate here. Uh, and also, uh, I want to say, Olivia and I are cooking up a new project uh, that, that will be in addition to the podcast. Uh, and, and I just want to tease you and say that that's, that's something that we're, we're actively discussing and working on that, that we're going to be launching over the summer. Um, so the patrons are making that possible. Do you want to say any more about that, Olivia? I think that's enough. That's good. That's I good. think. Little it, tease. It, I just love that when you guys send us messages about how we're helping you get through the yes, quarantine. Absolutely. So thanks, guys. And I want to say a couple words to our patrons who have had to drop uh, lately. Uh, temporarily i hope uh we un- we totally get it we love you we understand yeah, times course. are tough <laughs> and uh it, your thought to give us support at any point uh is uh, so greatly appreciated uh, and appreciated uh, ever and ever going forward uh yeah. so w- we wish you the best of luck and we're still here for you uh and please mm-hmm. continue to to stay with us in the community and enjoy uh you have earned it so yeah let's talk about our patrons first we've got gnarls the gnar Oh, that's... Some gnarly gnarls. Yes, gnarls the gnar, with G's, of course. Uh, Mario F.A., who, by the way, Olivia has got some occult confessing uh, Mario would like to do. Send them them on over. Coming our way. And Vanamwanen Mananan. Okay. Is that correct? Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, First of all, uh, Vanamwanen... Vanomwanen Mananan says we're the best circle of confessors of all the circles of confessors Vanomanen has ever encountered and is comfortable letting me figure out how to pronounce Vanomwanen Mananan. Well, I hope you're happy. Uh, And and sort of ironically, uh, or or maybe coincidentally, uh, I don't know, J, just the letter J is our ah. <laughs> fourth patron of today, last patron for today. Uh, ah, yes. Has some input for us on vampires. Uh, and we're actually going to be doing an episode on vampires uh, coming up uh, in our, in the getting close to the fall. Uh, so thanks, Jay. Yes. All right, you ready to uh, close those plugs up? 
Oh, no, no, no. Wait, 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 wait. Don't do it. Oh, oh, I took it out. It's done. It's not there. We wanted to give a mention. Uh, you, you had that interview, and we wanted to plug our friend over there. Oh, yeah. Uh, Free Range Mystics. Uh, they've been a follower of ours for a while, or a subscriber, but they started their own podcast. They've got, like, I think a, at least a good amount of episodes out now. Um, but yeah, I did an interview with them for one of their first episodes. So check it out if you want. Yeah, I, I, we're making a lot of friends out in the wide world. Uh, of, yeah. You know, when we say friends on the podcast, that doesn't necessarily mean, or it almost never means people we actually see with our faces and their faces. I guess we don't see anyone with mm-hmm. their faces these days. Nope. Uh, but these are folks we've met through the podcast. Uh, you know, if you're out there, you know, you, you're thinking about starting your own podcast or, you know, you're doing something creative and you want people to know, be, be a friend. Be, be, tell us about your occult yeah. thing that you're up to and we'll be happy to, uh, to share that with everybody and, and uh, t- take joy in, in whatever you're up to. We're all artists and we like helping other artists. So It's a creative community here. Yep. Cl- close them up now. Are we good? Are you sure? I feel pretty good. Okay, plug, plug. It's going to be done. It's going to be closed. Plug. It's done. (laughs) If I wanted to stop it, I don't think I could have. That train was coming. You couldn't have. It was rolling. (laughs) (laughs) The Two Babylons. Two? Two. The modern Satanist occultist conspiracy theory has its roots in mid-19th century Scotland with a preacher named Alexander Hislop. Alexander Hislop was a minister of the Free Church of Scotland who published one of the first accounts in the modern world of a millennia-long conspiracy to undermine Christianity. In 1853, he told the world about this secret plot he'd uncovered in a pamphlet, which he later upgraded to a book form, with the title, The Two Babylons, colon, Papal Worship Proved to be the Worship of Nimrod and His Wife. That's a long title. And the wife doesn't get a name there. She doesn't get no name drop there. Well, that's just rude. It's Semiramis, uh, but uh, she's just referred to as his wife. Anyway. Well, why couldn't... If the name was long enough, he couldn't just put her name in? Yeah, I think it would have been less letters. I don't know. Semiramis... Anyway. In Hislop's occult, the secret plot has reshaped Catholic worship in a Babylonian mold. Through their rituals and theology, Catholics unwittingly worship ancient Babylonian gods rather than the true Christian god. Or, or perhaps they worship the Christian God in the style of the ancient Babylonian gods. Honestly, Olivia, having read more than enough of this book, all I can say is, who the hell knows? Hmm. But the point I'll take is, either one. It, we, we take either. Babylonian worship yeah. is is happening. Let's hear from Hislop. Now, as the Babylon of the Apocalypse is characterized by the name of mystery, so the grand distinguishing feature of the ancient Babylonian system was the Chaldean mysteries that formed so essential a part of that system. And to these mysteries, the very language of the Hebrew prophet, symbolical though of course it is, distinctly alludes when he speaks of Babylon as a golden cup. Initiates drank a mixture of wine, honey, water, and flour to... uh, What? What? (laughs) That's disgusting. (laughs) It's a little thick. Just flour? It's like all clumpy and... A little soupy. What? Anyway, that placed them in an appropriately intoxicated state. The flower helps the body absorb the alcohol uh, to hear and understand the mysteries. The goal of the Babylonian mysteries was to garner the absolute submission and complete dependence of the people on the Babylonian hierarchy. This was carried out by priests who withheld much of the truth of what the mysteries were from the people. 
Hislop thinks this looks an awful lot like the Catholic priesthood, who served as intermediaries between the Catholic believer and God, maintaining God's mystery at a distance from the masses. So, the Catholic secret is actually that their rites and worship have all been borrowed from the Babylonians. The Catholics are possibly actually worshiping Babylonian gods! Tricked ya. <laughs> ha, gotcha. Got it. How did this coup take place in Hislop's view? The Babylonian mystery cult didn't drop down on the Catholic Church all at once. It insinuated itself gradually over time in the form of a kind of covert operation. A Luciferian covert operation. Until it eventually overtook the method and mode of Catholic worship entirely. The zeal of the true church, though destitute of civil power, would have aroused itself to put the false system and all its abettors beyond the pale of Christianity, if it had appeared openly and all at once in all its grossness, and the world would have arrested its progress. To start, the rite of confession, a rite very near and dear to our hearts here on Occult Confessions. We love confessing. We do. This rite was instituted as a form of blackmail. Oh. Yeah, think about that, right? Yeah. People could only be initiated into the mysteries if the priest had dirt on them to keep them from talking once the secrets were revealed. Right? That seems right. Yeah. So you go in to confess. You're like, yeah, uh, you know, I had, I had sex with my neighbor's wife upside down and backwards uh, in the bed, and uh, I have a crush on my goat. Well, now that's that's some stuff you don't want the neighborhood finding out about. No, they're going to lock their goats up. So, so, so the priest has all this information about you. So, you know, the, the fact that you're actually worship when you, when you get indoctrinated and you learn how to worship fire gods, you can't go out and tell everybody, hey, we're worshiping fire gods in there because the priest is going to be like, well, he's a, he's a goat banging wife uh, banger of men. <laughs> yep, that's what he's going to tell them. He's we'll going to put that, that exactly. one on the flyers in the town square. <laughs> this guy over here. For this reason, certain members of the laity and the entirety of the clergy have managed to keep the true nature of Catholic worship to themselves. Because, you see, Catholics aren't actually practicing anything particularly Christian. They're worshiping the fire god, also the water god, also the earth god of the ancient Assyrians and Babylonians. Should we start with the fire god? Yeah, let's do that. So the fire god, a.k.a. the red dragon. Oh, that's... That's intense. Right. It's like a nerd fantasy there. Some Avatar. Asso- Last Airbender. Yeah. Like I said. Associated with Nimrod. Biblically, Nimrod is the great-grandson of Noah, and Nimrod conquered Assyria. Tradition holds that Nimrod reigned over the construction of the Tower of Babel. He was, according to legend, the first king to wear a crown and learned the worship of idols in a direct affront to the Jewish god. Historically... Nimrod tends to be matched with the Assyrian king Ninus, the founder of Nineveh. All, right, but this is like possible. Like we're just trying to figure yeah. out who this might be. We don't have a historical corollary for Nimrod. We just have a bunch of guesses. Another ancient historical text, the homilies, equates him with Zoroaster, the founder of the Zoroastrian religion. Uh, so that, we, ever, we don't ever talk about Zoroaster. We'll have to get to that eventually. But yeah, I don't know what that is. Ancient religion, uh, arguably the first religion to invent the concept of the devil. Oh, wow. 
So the red dragon or fire dragon is a symbol for fire worship, initiated by Nimrod in Assyria and carried on in the form of sun worship or the worship of the fire god Baal. The the link between dragon and fire led to serpent worship. Toth, better known as the ibis-headed Egyptian god of wisdom and corollary to the Greek god Hermes, proceeded to create serpent worship and, according to Hislop, was a counselor of Nimrod. Uh, So, real quick. Basically, he's saying that Toth, who is an Egyptian god, the concept of the Egyptian god for Toth came from a real human guy who was a counselor to the real human guy, Nimrod, who got all this stuff going. You got me? Yeah. So we deified Toth into this guy. So it's Nimrod's fault that we worship both the fire and the serpent. Serpent worship is, of course, bad. (laughs) With deep Edenic connotations. Well, okay, y- well, you see why, right? Yeah, yeah. I Adam mean, and Eve and all that in the yeah, serpent. I get it. I get it. If, you, if, you're, if you're a Scottish preacher, serpent then worship sure. is bad. Hislop labels Nimrod the first Babylonian king who came to be known in some legends as Moloch. Hmm, that's familiar. It, uh, you remember where Moloch comes from? No. It was a demonology episode. Oh, okay. I mean, I think so. Um, so what would they would do in the Bible? Moloch is a biblical god, um, you know, not the biblical god, but like one of the gods ascribed mm-hmm. to the, you know, the Assyrians and the and the Babylonians, uh, who was responsible for eating children. Uh, but what, what, when we talked about him in the demonology episode, it was um, that Moloch uh, was sort of like they pulled together a bunch of their gods and were like, that's Moloch, all those gods. They got different names. They don't call him Moloch, oh, but we're calling him Moloch. And they yeah. all like to eat children. So sort of okay. like a, a way of tearing them down. Yeah. In Hislop's historiography, Nimrod came to be worshipped himself after his death as the child of the sun or the sun god incarnate. During his lifetime, he styled himself as the chief priest of Baal, sun god. So Esau, grandson of Abraham, ultimately made war on Nimrod, defeated him, and beheaded him. Oh. Biblical that's... times, man. Yeah, that's how it went, I guess. It's what you do. It's just how it goes. <laughs> Just behead people. Biblical times, you had to behead people sometimes. Oh, we should make biblical times a thing. Again? Like medieval times, but biblical oh, times. biblical times. Boy, wouldn't yeah. that be fun. Yeah, we just behead people when they worship snakes. Do you, would you, I don't know that you would like the crowd we would gather in a biblical times. Would we have a horse show? No, I think I would get burned <laughs> at the stake, honestly. This is a bad plan for me. It could be your contribution. I just... Oh, that's fun. Yeah. yeah could okay. Be burned as a medium. Yeah, I'd be into that, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> so. Biblical times. Hashtag biblical times. <laughs> the defeat of Nimrod by Esau is the defeat of fire worship. Uh, so, like in the grand narrative, right, of the, of the evolution mm-hmm. of religion. In Revelation, uh, this is symbolized by the casting down of the red dragon by God. Here, Nimrod becomes identified with Lucifer, the fallen angel, cast down from heaven. So we got to put all these equal signs in here. Fire God equals Nimrod equals Lucifer. Okay. All the same thing. Sometimes. Mm -hmm. If Hislop needs them to all be the same thing, then they're all the same thing. So the decline of fire worship was actually a cross-cultural event, uh, which Hislop observes. And he's right. Historically, this is true. In Indian Vedic tradition, the earliest known form of worship involved fire rituals. But the old gods, Indra and Agni, were replaced by the modern Hindu trinity of Vishnu, Shiva, and Brahma, and fire worship fell away. In Rome, 
the fires of Vesta. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. They were preserved by the Vest- Vestal Virgins. We talked about this on like our fifth or sixth yeah. episode, uh, the beginning of our Win- Lady Magic series. Lady Magic. Yeah. yeah. So they were extinguished when Rome was converted to Christianity under Constantine. So both of these are, you know, the end of fire worship, the moving forward uh, beyond fire worship. Roman fire worship was also Nimrod worship, going back to our equal signs, and the last surviving Roman pontifex Maximus was also the sole representative of Nimrod on Earth. Uh, so if y'all are panting to keep up with this, as as we are, uh, it's okay, don't worry. Hislop's entire system really involves breathtaking leaps in logic. So it's, it's this is like reading Hislop. What I'm doing here... Like, I'm even trying to help y'all with the equal signs and stuff. This is what it's like to read Hislop. There are these breathtaking leaps in logic from culture to culture, religion to religion. Babylonian religion is translated through Roman religion, worms its way into Christianity, and you just get all these crazy connections. Like, uh, he's like that, uh, you know, the the detective against the board, collect, connecting the, the pictures with the red string, like Charlie. Oh, the Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> So the role of the Roman pontifex, representative of Nimrod on Earth, was appropriated and transformed into the role of Pope. Pontifex, Pope. See the words? They're so close. Pontifex, Pope. We're drawing that that line. Drawing another line. Pontifex, Pope. (laughs) This was done by Damascus, uh, who was the Bishop of Rome, in order to convert the pagans to follow his leadership. So to get them to follow him as their spiritual leader, he said, I'll just call myself Pope because it sounds like Pontifex, and they already believe in the Pontifex. And so the worship of the Pope as God's representative on earth is, underneath the surface, the direct worship of the Babylonian king, Nimrod. Okay. But wait, there's more. All right. The worship of Dagon followed the beast from the sea in Revelation, also the god of the Philistines. Dagon was half man, half fish, and rose from the sea to teach the Babylonians art and science. That's cool. That's nice, yeah. Yeah, It's pretty, pretty cool of him. A great flood brought an end to the age of Nimrod, put out the fire, and ushered in the worship of Dagon, or water worship. Ultimately, the cults of Dagon and Nimrod were combined into a single mystery cult. When the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and brought it into Dagon's temple, Dagon's likeness actually kept falling prostrate before the Ark. Uh, This uh, united Babylonian Judeo-Christian myth and religion. Uh, Just like we had done with Nimrod, it's happening again. So this story shows us this connection. With Dagon worshiping at the Ark of the Covenant, like the one god kneeling to the other god, this is not the defeat of that god. It's actually the incorporation of that god into that system, the Judeo-Christian system. Uh, With, you know, Christian god in the dominant position, but still Dagon gets to play. He's not kicked out of the... He's on the team. Aw. So the doctrine of being, but that's to, that's not very, that's nobody, no Christian today would be like, ah, yes, there is God, and then there is water God. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> no, I can't. We, we worship the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and, and water God. <laughs> this cup of water. <laughs> yeah, this guy. From which here. our water God, <laughs> yes. But about that cup of water, Olivia. The doctrine of being born again through baptism is actually an incarnation of Dagon worship, idolization of the beast of the sea. Well, then I'm part of the gang. 
Just as, me too, actually, just as Dagon <laughs> rose from the sea, so the Christian child or initiate must rise from the waters of baptism. That's like some Aphrodite shit. Oh, yeah. Hislop traces this development to just after the First Council of Nicaea. You're going to love this, Olivia. It was then precisely AD 360 that our Lord Jesus Christ began to be popularly called Ichthys, that is, the fish, many festively to identify him with Dagon. At the end of the 4th century, and from that time forward, it was taught that he who had been washed in the baptismal font was thereby born again, and made pure as the virgin snow. Hislop is generally guilty of great leaps in logic, and what I might generously call wishful scholarship, but here, I have to agree with him. That Jesus fish on the back of your kid's soccer coach's minivan is actually an icon for an ancient Philistine and Babylonian water god. It is heresy in the eyes of true Christians everywhere. What? Yeah, Karen. <laughs> yeah, Karen. <laughs> take, that. take that, Karen. We don't pick on Karen on this podcast, do we? This is the first. First well, time. Well, I'm starting it, because Karen, you need to get that... Fish off your the off your car. Hey Olivia. What? What would Dagon do? Oh my god, what would Dagon do? WWDD. Just fludge some shit, probably. That's what he would That's do. The answer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're supposed to we gotta get the bracelets. Anyway. Yeah. We should make those. Okay. This would be really funny, actually, merch idea. Merch yeah, what would Dagon do, bracelets? I kinda like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so maybe, maybe. If you write in, if you write to us. If enough people <laughs> enough say people. that they will fight for those bracelets, we'll make them happen. Yes, I think we can. Hislop is a fan of Jovinian, uh, who I actually like to spend more time with. Maybe I will for, for Patreon. Uh, so Jovinian believed that all sin was equal, that there was nothing special about celibacy or sinful about marriage, and Jovinian argued against the perpetual virginity of Mary. Okay. So he was like, yeah, Mary, come on now. Mary did not, Mary didn't get laid. Come on, is what Jovinian is saying. Yeah, he's he's not buying it. Uh, Because I guess that, I guess part of the doctrine is that, Catholic doctrine is that Mary was perpetually a virgin throughout her life, I I suppose. But she was married. And there was a whole like sect too, right? That like split off at one point and they like only were devoted to Mary. Was I remember in my Reformations class I had to learn about this, but I don't remember what they're yeah, called. We're the last people to comment on this. We do have our, none of our Christians are pre- present today. I'm sure they'd be screaming at us. Oh yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, but it, it doesn't but J- James is the brother of Jesus, so where did he come from? Yeah, exactly. Right? Anyway. <laughs> like Priestly, by Joseph, I suppose, or and not by God, because then there'd be two of them, and that that would mean James is actually Dagon. Well, then, oh, God. Well, maybe that's, is that the conspiracy? <laughs> it's not. <laughs> We're just making this up right now. We're making conspiracy. <laughs> We're making our own. Screw this. We'll just start making our own. We might, we might, this might I mean, attract more listeners, yeah. Basically what we're talking about, right? There's an audience for this. Priestly celibacy is one of Hislop's favorite targets. He cites the tombs of the church fathers, which list the names of their wives, as well as 1 Timothy, which says that a preacher must be faithful to his wife. Well, if the Bible says it, then... Much like confession and the papacy, priestly celibacy, he claims, is an aberration erroneously introduced into Catholic practice through the doctrines of the Babylonian mysteries. Take that, priestly celibacy. Yeah. I mean, it, it is unique to the Catholics. It's a, an interesting idea. When did that happen? Like, when... I mean, in when... theory, the idea stems from the notion that Jesus was celibate. Therefore, to be closer to God, 
is to be celibate. I think we've said this on on some past episodes. I guess the Jesus conspiracies with like Mary Magdalene really throws a wrench in that. Yeah, that is more blasphemous than I think people grasp, uh, because the entirety of the Catholic Church's practice is based on this notion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and they wouldn't want to, you know, if Riley Rear, she wouldn't like me saying the demonization of sex. But, it, you know, essentially it, it is the labeling of sex as... Uh, Comparatively. The, yeah, it's a lot of, there's a lot of spiritual legislation around sex that, you know, for example, yeah. a, a neo-pagan or, you know, our, our yeah. the traditions we tend to identify with do not do that stuff. So They're not doing sex magic. Indefinitely not. Yeah. <laughs> and look what they're missing out on. Yeah, honestly. The trouble with Hislop um, is not what most people blame him for. That is to say, completely misreading his sources and cherry-picking his evidence. Uh, The trouble is more a matter of context. He claims that the circular wafer used in Catholic communion was taken from the Egyptians, who served circular cakes on their altars. But if you go back to the source for this little factoid, you'll discover that the Egyptians also served triangular cakes and cakes shaped like alligator heads. Wait, he overlooked the alligator heads? He decided to zone in on the circular ones? The most boring ones? (laughs) Yes, he had to. Because the Catholics use circular wafers. Oh, I see. So he's saying, oh, they use circular wafers. And the Egyptians use circular cakes in their rituals. Therefore, they are pagans just like the Egyptians. They're secretly doing a pagan Egyptian thing. But that completely overlooks the fact that circular... Yes, of course they use circular cakes, but they also used alligator head cakes, which are, you're right, are way more badass. So... Could you imagine if you were taking alligator wafers at communion? What a day. Wow. You might be in Florida. You might be in Florida if... I was literally about to say. (laughs) So like my students repeating some of the crazier things I say on Twitter, Hislop is very simply taking pretty much all of his evidence out of context uh so that is a thing that is a thing he does but that's not actually the deeper metaphysical problem i perceive in what hislop's up to hislop like the modernist conspiracy theories who will follow him is in the business of making heretics especially calling out the catholics as heretics which is essentially reversing a millennium-long trend of catholics calling pretty much Everyone else a heretic. <laughs> he just reversed psychology, the church. Yeah, there's like, a little bit of a divine justice, I think, in that. You think I'm bad, you're bad. Coming back around to hit him in the butt. Uh, but he's carving a very narrow space for true believers to exist. This is not a big tent. Heslop's tent is actually a bathroom stall. Uh, think of Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry god. This isn't exactly that kind of theology, but it's from the same family. And you have to believe in a very specific way to count among Hislop's true Christians. Let's keep in mind that these Catholics, Hislop's attacking, agree with him that Jesus is God and died on the cross for the sins of humankind, then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. They believe all those things. They can all agree on this, that the Bible is true, that it is a source of knowledge and wisdom, and that Paul is a true interpreter of Jesus' message, even though he never met Jesus personally, etc. So they agree on a whole lot of stuff. But yeah, That's more than a lot of people. Right? But Hislop is obsessed with the differences, and this places most of the world outside the good graces of our Creator. All right, so where did all this come from? What's the, wh- wh- why would Hislop be developing this theory at this time? Why would he be? It's a good question, developing right? Developing his theory, yes. <laughs> right? 
It's not like suddenly there was all this this Dagon worship going on. It's not like uh, <laughs> there were all the bumpers in in Scotland on uh, you know horse and buggy suddenly had Jesus fish on them. And everyone was yelling, "What would Dagon do?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So where did he come up? Why did he? Why did he feel the need to write this book? In the 1840s and 1850s, there was a strong anti-Catholic movement in America and also in the United Kingdom. Although Hislop is writing in Scotland, he's part of the same grand cultural shift sweeping across Western Christendom. The United Kingdom came to its anti-Catholic sentiments fairly honestly. Henry VIII, one of Olivia's favorite people. Yeah, well, right? his relatives more so. The oh, time enough. period. The family, the Tudors. Mary's my girl, but yes. Henry broke with the church in part so that he could divorce his wife and produce a legitimate heir. But let's bear in mind, it was also because he was a student of religion and had substantial theological differences with the Pope's brand of Catholicism. His daughter by Anne Boleyn, Elizabeth I, brokered a peace between warring Catholics and Protestants in England. But the 1605 gunpowder plot to blow up Parliament, uh, which took place under the reign of James I slash 6th, was ascribed to Catholic conspirators, as was the Great Fire of London in 1666. Hear that? 666. Oh, that's fun. Which Londoners believed was the work of Catholics, just after the fall of the Puritanical Interregnum. In many Protestant European nations, after the Reformation, Catholics tended to be viewed as political outsiders, loyal to a foreign prince, namely the Pope. Anti-Catholic sentiments cooled during the 18th century, but rose again in the mid-19th when Alexander Hislop was writing in Scotland, when Pope Pius IX re-established a clerical hierarchy in England. So Pius IX is messing around uh, with the English church system, and this is what sort of gets everybody in the UK weed up about uh, the Catholic Church, the Protestants, which, you know, most of the UK would be. Moving over to the United States, the Puritans brought their anti-Catholic feelings with them when they traveled to the New World, and many of the colonies had laws banning Catholics from civic participation. Virginia and Massachusetts banned Catholic settlers, and Maryland, which, by the way, originally had been founded as a safe haven for Catholics and a beacon for religious tolerance, which I think historically is pretty nifty, because we work, we, we podcast from Maryland. It's our brand. Yeah, yeah religious tolerance is what we're all about here. Um, so so this is it's what we're all about. But unfortunately, uh, in, in the great state of Maryland, uh, they changed their laws, forcing Catholics to pay heavy taxes, and many Catholics actually fled to Pennsylvania, uh, where there was greater religious tolerance on account of the Quakers. So, during the American Revolution, both the colonists and the royalists blamed each other for being part of a secret Catholic plot to overthrow the one true government, sort of pulling this anti-Catholicism forward. With the dawning of the new nation, though, anti-Catholic sentiment dissipated much as it had in England, rising up again with the influx of Irish Catholics beginning in the 1830s. Now, in this case with the Irish Catholics, anti-Catholicism really went hand-in-glove with anti-immigrant sentiment. Uh, there's always anti-immigrant sentiment. At any time period in history, wherever you are, there's always anti-immigrant feelings. Uh, it just so happened that this was a Catholic immigrant population. There was fear of Catholic schools perpetuating papist allegiance in the U.S. and that the Catholics would ultimately overwhelm Protestants by sheer numbers and take control of American democracy. Uh, we're actually, we hear some of the stuff about uh, immigrants to this country from Central Amer- America and Mexico now, right? That they're going to outnumber Right. This lasted all the way through the election of John F. Kennedy, the first Catholic American president, and that was in 1961. 
Yeah, you'd think we would have had one before that. Catholics with their saints and shrines and angels and demons live in an enchanted universe, much like the pagan universe of the Romans and Babylonians, albeit with the significant shift to monotheism and all that belief in Jesus as the Savior entails. So, you know, pagans, but, you know, big, big edit there. Protestants have broken with this whole mysterious and magical scene. For the Protestant, angels and demons have been banished from this world. Catholic enchantment is a thing of the past. God is in his heaven, and the human world functions according to strict principles of cause and effect. Protestant theology really fits a rational scientific culture well. Perceived holdovers of paganism threatened to bring Christianity down when the new empiricism attacked and disproved the various miracles they claimed to produce, or seem to anyhow. In other words, in the eyes of Hislop, Christianity's continued relationship with magic and mystery makes it vulnerable in an age of science and reason. And perhaps subject to annihilation, we could lose religion. The magic and mystery of Catholic ritual is actually a scandal on modern, rationalized Christianity. All right, now here, here we come. Let's deal with this whole thought process, because this is the big problem that occult confessions tends to, to address. The problem with this is that Jesus himself performed miracles. Yeah, that's true. Tangled with Satan in the forest. Jesus existed in an enchanted world. Paul based his interpretation of Christianity on supernatural visions of the Savior. Us modernist and postmodernist occultists have proven that belief in magic and mystery can actually survive in a rationalist world dominated by atheistic scientism. In fact, our way of thought may be better suited to fill the spiritual void left by our modern metaphysics. Uh, And so there you go on anti-Catholicism. Despite the flaws in Hislop's argument, though, his ideas have echoed through the centuries. In 1966, even after Kennedy's election, evangelical Christian Ralph Woodrow published The Babylon Religion, drawing largely on Hislop's argument and crafting his own polemic against the Catholic Church. The book went through multiple editions and was translated into a handful of languages. Writing for the Christian Research Institute in 2000, Woodrow actually lamented, relying on Hislop's account, which he realized was highly manipulative and often flat-out dishonest in its argument. So, in other words... (laughs) This ideology lasted all the way through the 1960s into 1966. This guy, Ralph Woodrow, is publishing a very popular book that draws on these ideas. And then in 2000, 40 years later, he's like, oops, that was a bad plan. I mean, that kind of sucks when the source that you're using is from like, what, how long ago? Uh, 1853. Yeah. 1853, 1966, 2000, yeah. Uh, Yeah. But for all the reasons that I said, right, it's just not a good source. that's what I mean, yeah. In the 1920s and 1930s, the godmothers of modern conspiracy theory would pick up where Hislop left off, expanding on his Catholic plot to the entire Western world and labeling the Babylonian conspiracy a Luciferian occult theocracy. Did you notice there, Olivia, that I said godmothers with a z? I did. Uh, Yeah. With a z. Yeah. So we've only been talking about the one godmother. I started this series on occult conspiracy with Nesta Helen Webster, but she actually wasn't alone. A second, more mysterious woman emerged just a few years after Webster published her theory of the Illuminati. Like Hislop, this woman, Edith Starr Miller, believed that an occult sleeper cell had infiltrated a long-established organization to propagate occult worship. 
But in her telling, she replaced the Christian church with, you wait for it, the Freemasons. Oh, wow. Well. Edith Starr Miller, also known by her aristocratic title, Lady Queenborough. You like that? What a name. Yeah. That's a great name. Like I'd the, love that. Bur- Just Burrow add that of on Queens. the end. Le- yeah. Olivia Literal, Borough of Queens. Yes. I Borough all of your queens here. Was born Olivia. around... <laughs> she, she was born around 1888. And she grew up in her parents' six-story townhouse in New York on Fifth Avenue and 86th Street. That's a big townhouse. Well, yeah, she's she got some money. Her grandfather was one of the founders of the Met, the Metropolitan Opera. Oh, that's kind of nice. Her first book, Common Sense in the Kitchen, published in 1918, uh, was not actually what it sounds like. Um, it was It's not about cooking or anything. It was a manual for suspicious domestic employers, you know, so rich, rich white ladies, uh, to prevent their butlers, maids, and cooks uh, from stealing from them. I mean, you gotta, right? So if you're a lady borough. <laughs> you gotta keep an eye on those butlers and maids and cooks. Yeah. But uh, this was the, the conspiracy that her servants were cooking up against her was but one of the conspiracies she mined in her literature. Her second book, Occult Theocracy, was published after her death in 1933, uh, and she was 45 when she died. Occult Theocracy borrowed from Hislop and Webster in its construction. Like Webster, it sought to trace the existence of an anti-religious occult group through the long arc of history. And like Hislop, it found that group in the secret corners of a well-known public organization. To introduce ourselves to Lady Queenborough's anti-occultism, I invite our listeners to join us for the second in our ongoing series, Occult Take, in which we take, uh, we send a quote, we take a quote, and we send that quote. In this case, a quote from Edith Star Miller to one of our fellow occult podcasters and get their occult take. Today's text comes from the first few pages of Occult Theocracy, uh, and commenting on that is going to be Aniel Reed of the podcast Magic and Mediums. Magic and mediums. Okay, let's, uh, let's check it out. Our God, the God of the Christians, is the power of evil in the eyes of the Kabbalist. And for them, the power of good, the real God, is Lucifer. As someone who is an occultist, I definitely do believe that there is a political connotation to this quote talking about how the real God is Lucifer. We can say that Lucifer, especially in the images of Lucifer now with the tail and the horns, is actually a unique representation of the pagan god Pan. And so we can say that the power of good is really this pagan entity that was crushed down as Christianity started to take over and literally kill people if they did not submit to believing that the God of the Christians was the true God. But when it comes to the eyes of the Kabbalist, and in this case, Kabbalist with a C, I wonder why in particular it is the God of the Christians that is viewed as evil. For me, I think of the tree of life and I actually 
did a little bit of counting the Omer, which is a Jewish Kabbalistic ritual in which every day you count the day and you do specific meditations that actually can tie in with the different Sephiroth of the Tree of Life. And from that practice, which you can say is a Kabbalistic practice with a K, I found that this God that we're getting closer to in this Kabbalistic practice is one that isn't the God really represented in the Old Testament Christian text or the God that is preached about by old Christian pastors and priests. This is a God that is found within ourselves and is a God that really helps us go through different changes without judgments. And as much as Christians say they don't want to judge others, a lot of Christianity is about judging. It is about being in this two-dimensional perspective in which there is good and there is bad. But when we look at Lucifer, what is bad isn't necessarily bad. What is good could be bad, and what is bad could be good. And in that sense, that is the divine, because that is all that is. In a sense, it is the I am. It is the I am bad, I am good, I just am. And for me, that's what Lucifer really represents. And I'm not talking about the whole Luciferian movement, which is really a sort of rebellion against the modern-day church. I'm talking about Lucifer as this being an entity in this evolution of Pan itself or the evolution of these pagan deities that got warped up into this demonic and evil thought form. When we think about the Tree of Life and we think about the fifth Sephiroth, which really goes into the dark night of the soul and a depression and a sadness and a loneliness, a lot of people would refer that to as being in hell. And with Lucifer being associated with hell, we can associate that with a Luciferian time. But it's in that time that people really find the light within themselves. And that's when the true God within ourselves comes to light. It's not from going to someone like a preacher or pastor, which I think the Old Testament and the people who said that they were his disciples would have preached or preferred. It's about going deep within yourself and finding the light within yourself as a result of this hellish time. Lady Queenborough traces the genealogy of the Illuminati through a path more or less the same as the one Webster outlines. It begins in the pre-Christian world, is picked up by the Gnostics, encompasses the Templars and the Rosicrucians, as well as the Cathars, and culminates with the Freemasons. Her only identifiable associate was Robert Byron Drury Blakeney, editor-in-chief of the Fascist Bulletin. Her husband, Elmerick High Paget, Lord Queenborough, was a conservative member of Parliament. He served as treasurer for the League of Nations, but hated communism so much that he resigned in 1936 when Russia was admitted, and to cap things off, he expressed admiration for Hitler's new Germany. So, communism? Not cool. Fascism? He keeps an open mind. 
This is not to suggest that Lady Queenborough was on board with all of her husband's alliances and opinions. Edith, in fact, sued for divorce a year before she died. Speaking of that death, given her seminal place in the history of conspiracy, some suspect, despite a complete lack of evidence, that she died of unnatural causes. She was, after all, only middle-aged at the time. Therein is Christ's teaching diametrically opposed to that of the high adepts, whose secret doctrine was that man had divinity in himself and could bring it out by exercise of will, by concentration of thought and scientific psychic development. Fear, the predominant feature attendant upon the gaining of knowledge in all other religious systems, was foreign to the adherence of Christ. Love of God and love of the neighbor were the only precepts. Faith and charity, the only means through which the divine spirit gave man transcendental power over moral evil and physical ills. All right, uh, like we like to do, let's fight with some dead people, Olivia. I'm pretty sure we solely fight with dead people. That's like our our targeted audience of of fighting. Of people we fight with. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's important. I mean, we we, do, we take on some living people, but the living people, yeah. I mean, my issue is the reason I fight with dead people is because the living people pick up all these ideas from the dead people. Yeah. And the dead people are actually picking up their ideas from people who are more dead than them. And it's just like this chain. If we can trace the chain back to the beginning and break that beginning link, then everything that follows, it's like it's a, you know, it's a house of cards, like it's a Jenga. Yeah tower the whole thing just topples over so i think if we can adequately address how messed up these ideas were from the start then we can when we notice them in contemporary culture we can see where they came from but also understand why they're wrong so let me fight with miller Uh, i tend to see multiple systems privileging love belief and charity as the hallmarks of a spiritual life buddhism for example i'd even say neo-paganism can be described this way in fact if we remove Queenborough's prejudice against scientific development, uh, most of modern occultism looks much like the perfect Christianity she describes. Spiritualists, theosophists, modern Rosicrucians, Wiccans, neo-pagans, they all focus their practice on love, faith, or belief in a spirit, if not God, and giving generously of themselves to serve others. And fear has no place in any of these traditions which focus on giving their members comfort for the next life and a means of dealing with the pains of this life. And given, as I've already mentioned, that Jesus performed miracles to help persuade his followers, it's a bit unfair to deprive modern believers of the phenomena of faith healing, mediumship, pathworking, or any of the other means by which modern occult believers find their faith. But it's not just supernatural phenomena that Miller takes issue with. Within a very short time after the death of Christ, Christian ritualism began to appear. A theological system of dogmas and beliefs was devised, modes of worship elaborated, and a hierarchy arose with all its attendant evils. Here she rolls up Catholicism along with ceremonial magic, pulling in and tearing down the Freemasons and the Golden Dawn and Rosicrucians in one grand swipe. But she doesn't justify why these paths to love, faith, and charity are so damaging. My philosophical disputes with Queenborough are actually fairly petty compared to the real flaw in her narrative. While it is grand, stretching across cultures and millennia, it's often breathtakingly spare 
and bizarrely specific in the way it constructs the movements that form the great Luciferian conspiracy. In this way, her writing resembles Hislop's method of lifting practices from ancient traditions out of context. The Gnostics, who Olivia loves, I do. were apparently founded by mediums to communicate with the spirits of the dead. Does that sound right? Wait, say what? They were she, founded by mediums? Yes, this is her claim. Uh, this argument needs some attention, right? Because this is not something we can just say, oh yeah, of course that's true. I don't even understand what that's supposed to like mean. <laughs> so she just says this and that's it. She doesn't defend it. She doesn't well, argue okay. for it. She just drops it like it's true. This is just okay, the girl. truth. All right, whatever. <laughs> She quickly turns from broad Gnosticism to a particular branch, the Carpocratians, who promoted promiscuous sex and incorporated sex into magical practices. All we know today of this group comes from its enemies, the early church fathers who had an agenda to point out the Gnostics' heresies. In any event, they were only one of the dozens and dozens of Gnostic sects practicing at the time, and it's strange to single them out as if they represent the whole movement. This is just how she talks, though. These weird, hard left turns are in almost every chapter. Her discussion of the Rosicrucians begins with the usual complaints about them seeking immortality in the form of the Philosopher's Stone and their cupidity, lusting after the means to transform base metals into gold. So they're greedy, horny bastards. Well, damn. But then she points to the Rosicrucians as the progenitors of the Freemasons and suddenly, really suddenly, turns to Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector of the Commonwealth, during the interregnum. Yeah, seriously. Okay. Cromwell, she says, was a brother Mason, suggesting that the execution of Charles I was a Masonic plot. This this is all like in a matter what? of pages. This this is done in like a few pages. She's just bam, 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 all over the place. That hurts my brain a little bit. Thus it came about that all blows dealt to Christianity and states were prepared by the secret societies acting behind the veil of masonry. In the face of late events, namely the peace conference, the creation of the League of Nations, the amalgamation of international resources, the confiscatory inheritance taxes, the development of international finance, the proposed establishment of an international non-Christian cult, have we the right to refrain from lifting the veil of masonry, behind which subversive movements are so conveniently hidden? Traditional government and Protestant Christianity are the good guys to Queensborough's occult and subversive bad guys who are one and the same. Cromwell is as much an occultist as John Dee or Robert Flood, at least by implication. This is insane. The link that draws all this together is the Freemasons, a culmination and centralization of the occult and radical political programs. So in the Freemasons, we will finally see a group that is both worshiping Lucifer and seeking to overthrow traditional government. That was not in National Treasure. (laughs) The link between occult devilry and the Freemasons is arguably the most important part of Queenborough's book, although it only takes up a few chapters. Queenborough's Freemason plot starts when French Mason Hyman Isaac Long, a British Jew living in Jamaica, is supposed to have brought. Wait, the... what? <laughs> what? So, Sorry. 
that was a lot. I'm sorry. I'm I'm there now. Okay. I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it again. If it was a lot, for I you, already love him. Might be a lot all... for others. Yeah. Hyman Isaac Long, a British Jew living in Jamaica. That's like a story in of itself. He is supposed to have brought the Knights Templar's head of Baphomet and also oh, the head oh of my. Jacques de Molay. <gasps> oh, right? he's back. He's back. He's here. Uh, so it's, isn't it, it's, uh, <laughs> like it's tough because of COVID and we did all that special, the special series and all that. Theoretically, all the pieces should start to fit together. Like that's why I do these longer series because we just talked about the Templars. Like We yeah. can start to pull the, but unfortunately that was now a while ago. Anyway... He was our Grand Master of the Templars, right? Uh, so he brought the head of Baphomet, the head of Jacques de Molay, uh, which the Templars, uh, who managed to escape from their persecution, brought safely to Scotland, um, and then they bought it from which, and they bought the head from the executioner who killed Jacques de Molay. Nice. Okay, so when our friend French Mason Hyman Isaac Long, British Jew, immigrated uh, from Jamaica to Charleston, South Carolina, in 1796, he brought these two heads along with him. So he's just traveling around the world, carrying heads. In Charleston, people are like, what's okay. in the bag? And he's like, a bowling ball. And they're like, what's bowling? So the heads got to Jamaica? <laughs> yeah, and got, then he took yes, them from Jamaica... To Charleston, South Carolina. Why is the British man in Jamaica? Oh, uh, colonization? Yeah, colonization, yeah. Okay, never mind. I should have assumed. So, in Charleston, the head of St. Jacques sits on a pedestal and talks with the Masons and also vomits flames once a year. I would love to see what vomiting flames means. Like, what is that actually? <laughs> like, you know, like, like your dragon guarding a treasure just spews forth flame. Well, that's just breathing fire. That's not vomiting flame. <laughs> well, Do you know what I, I mean? Like, <laughs> maybe it's more anyway. unpleasant. Uh, in, I, yeah. In Charleston, Queen Queen Queenborough's conspiracy, Edith Star Miller, hits its stride with the story of a man named Albert Pike, he who was elected the Sovereign Grand Commissioner of the Scottish Rites Southern Jurisdiction in 1859. According to Queenborough, while serving as Grand Commissioner, Pike also became leader of a secret Masonic order within the Masonic order, a covert operation called the Palladians. Who, oh my gosh. Yeah, they worshipped Lucifer as a god co-equal to the Christian god. So they kept the Christian god, but they just added Lucifer as part two. Okay. In one lurid account... Queenborough describes a seance Pike ran in St. Louis, in which a psychic medium was possessed by the spirit of the elemental Ariel, along with, picture Ariel as a hot redhead with a fishtail, along with 329 <laughs> in seashell cups over her boobs. Not what I first thought, but thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Yeah, anytime. Uh, also, the Shakespeare play, right? Tempest, Ariel That's is That's what in I Tempest, was yeah. thinking was the... No, but I prefer the Disney cartoon. That's what I want you to picture in this scenario. Yeah, honestly, that's a lot better. So (laughs) the medium becomes possessed by our mermaid, along with 320 other spirits of fire. Oh, wow. That's a lot. She rose up above the heads of the seance participants, and her clothes were burned away. It gets sexier. Oh. The group, except for the seashell cups, the group somehow able to continue with the seance. So they just kept going, right? So the medium rises up. They're like, this is fine. Yes, her clothes burn away. And they just, you know, don't bat an eyelash. Uh, So 
They continue with the seance. They proceed to ask her questions, I assume very calmly, which she answers. And then Astaroth appeared. Oh, uh, wow. We're just, everyone's here. So Astaroth, formerly uh, Archangel, became a demon, whatever, appeared and clothed her with his breath. And she descended back into a chair uh, where she gave up the possessing spirits. Clothed her with his breath? Yeah. Dressed her right back up so she could go outside again. Yeah, uh, so this did the, there's this the only account of this is in Queen Burroughs' book, as far as I can tell, or she's at least the popularizer of this story that had ever happened. Mm-hmm. However, the Albert Pike conspiracy was not her own original idea. The notion that Albert Pike was the head of a secret Masonic order within a Masonic order can actually be traced to the French French anti-clerical writer Gabriel Johann Pages, who wrote under the pseudonym. Leo Taxil. Great name. Which one? Leo Taxil or the other one? I'll take either because some of these people have not had some great names. So we're so Leo Taxil is now the center of the story. We're going to talk all about this guy. I I love I love this man. Uh, I don't want to be him, but I love him. Okay. Okay, so Taxil had been accused of libel by Pope Leo the 13th after the publication of his book, The Secret Loves of Pope Pius IX. Now, that name should sound familiar, Olivia. You remember Pope Pius? From earlier? Yeah, he's the guy who reestablished clerical hierarchy in England and pissed off Alexander Hislop. Whew. Hmm. Uh, so our, our friend Leo Taxil writes this whole book about how he's having all these secret love affairs. That's which, pretty ballsy. Yeah, That's po- spicy. Pope's not supposed to do that. Okay, so... Yeah. This was not Toxiel's first book attacking the Catholic Church, uh, but at the time, it appeared as though it might be his last. Uh, oh. So the time period, it's the mid-1880s, uh, and Toxiel suddenly comes to Jesus. To the shame and chagrin of his anti-clerical club. All right, so remember I did that whole bit on anti-Catholicism. Yeah. <laughs> the, People hate Catholics so much in the 19th century that they form clubs where they can just sit around hating them. So, so he, he, he Toxiel, Leo Toxiel is a member of one of these clubs. So again, that, that's the, I, I don't want to be him. I love him, but I don't want to be him because that's, yeah. that's not cool. So, but he, now he pisses all of his friends off in his club because he suddenly now converts. now he's like Jesus. Okay. Yeah, he, yes. He marches through the door of a Catholic church, finds the nearest priest and confesses, after which he is welcomed with open arms into the bosom of the church. In addition okay, that, to that, that seems a little bit like a quick, rash decision, maybe. But <laughs> yes. you know, whatever. We're going to dwell on that decision for a little bit, okay? Okay. So, in addition to being an anti-clerical, published several times over, Taxil had also been a Freemason. This is important to understanding this whole story. But in 1881, his lodge had kicked him out when he got into an argument with two of his lodge brothers. He decided, instead of speaking out against the Catholic Church, of which he was now a member, he would turn his attention to the Freemasons who had rejected him and became the living embodiment of the conspiracy theorist transition from Hislop's anti-Catholicism to Webster and Queenborough's anti-Masonry. So he is the missing link between Hislop and Queenborough and the whole anti-Mason thing that we do in the 20th century. 
he goes on to publish four volumes detailing the satanic current running through Masonic rituals. Let me repeat that. That's four volumes. Well, which phrase? Satanic just, current? Just that whole <laughs> phrase you said. I was down with. So four volumes about this satanic current. Yeah? Yeah. This is a lot of work. Uh, and, and that's what we really have to understand about this guy. He is putting in a lot of effort here. Pope Leo XIII, who was Toxiel's old nemesis when he was an anti-cleric, right? And was yeah. super pissed because of these books he was writing about Pius IX, also believed that the Masons were conducting satanic rites. So Leo XIII, completely independently of Leo Toxiel, had developed the, this idea that the Masons were actually Satanists. And he published... Gonna... Oh, yeah. It's, it's, they're all going to click. Okay. They're going to click together. Yeah. 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 He published an encyclical discouraging Catholics from joining the Masons. The Freemasons, Pope Leo XIII said, were an organization in which the partisans of evil were combining together to struggle against the faith. So there was a whole lot of enthusiasm around Toxiel's conversion, our anti-Catholic, because he'd been such a vocal critic of the church. Toxiel told a story about a cleric from Freiburg visiting him at his home. Ah, you, Mr. Taxil, you are a saint because God rescued you from so deep an abyss. You must have a mountain of graces upon your head. As soon as I heard of your conversion, I took the train and here I am. On my return, I must be able to not only say that I saw you, but that you performed a miracle in front of me. Turn this chair into a cane, or an umbrella. What? Yeah, this really happened. An actual, what? an actual Catholic canon came to his house and said, "Transform your furniture for me." So the church, like, legitimately, like, welcomed him with open arms. They were thrilled. That seems so crazy to me. That they weren't just like, yeah, we'll we'll let you in our club and then we'll fucking backstab you. Nope. Like oh. you'd think, you know, you can't talk all that shit and then just join the other side. Unfortunately for our man, uh, the, the, the canon, uh, Taxiel was not up to the task. Later, he told an audience from the French press the story of his encounter with the cleric. I gently declined to perform such a wonder. And my canon returned to Freiburg, saying that if I was not performing miracles, it was out of humility. <laughs> Several months later, he sent me a gigantic Gruyere cheese, on the crust of which he carved pious inscriptions, wild mystic hieroglyphs with a knife. An excellent cheese by all means, which never seemed to come to an end, and which I ate with infinite respect. How do you like that? He sent him a cheese. What? That feels like vaguely pagan to me like that's <laughs> that like something that like you just like give someone a cheese as a present with like <laughs> carved like shit in it like that's crazy like the everlasting gobstopper of gruyere cheeses <laughs> that honestly i need that right now though like in <laughs> quarantine yeah it's some good cheese so taxiel even met the pope who he found out owned all of his anti-Masonic books, probably also all of his anti-clerical books, if I have to guess. I guess you gotta, you have to know who hates you. Yeah. 
So Toxiel followed up the success of his four-volume set with The Confession of Diana Vaughn, a former grand priestess of the Palladian Lodge within the Masonic Lodge in Charleston, South Carolina, where Albert Pike was the head man in charge, and Hyman Isaac Post had brought the mysterious Templar heads from Scotland back in the day. Well, from Jamaica, from Scotland. Follow all that? Yes. So, yes. so ba- basically, now, we're, now we've got a high priestess who's functioning within this secret order within a secret order. Yeah. So Vaughn had invoked the name of Joan of Arc, our priestess, uh, in a ritual. Uh, And invoking the name of Joan of Arc drove off the demons, and the experience of putting the Mason's devil to flight with the name of a saint convinced her to give up worshipping Lucifer and, like Toxiel, join the Catholic Church. So she let the name of Joan of Arc slip while she was performing one of her grand Palladian rites, and suddenly the devils all left, and she was like, oh, man. How do you just let Joan of Arc slip? The Catholic, I don't know. <laughs> you just, oops. She, I have no idea. I, yeah. All right. It's not uh, like a curse word, you know. Maybe it should be. Maybe we should try that. Oh, Joan of Arc. <laughs> I'm going to start that. It's that might defend some Catholics. Yeah, maybe, I don't right? know. I don't know. So this proves to her that saints are more powerful than Palladian devils. Okay. So Diana Vaughn actually first met Lucifer uh, with the Charleston Freemasons on the 8th of April, 1889. She was born with royal blood. Uh, in, in Tox- we get all this from Toxiel's account of her. Uh, and was indoctrinated into Palladianism by virtue of her family. She traces her lineage back to the Renaissance alchemist Thomas Vaughn. Her father was an American Protestant from Kentucky, and her mother was French and died when she was 14. At the age of 20, she crossed the threshold of the triangles, entering the Palladian Lodge. Lucifer asked to meet her, and she spent three days preparing by eating a special diet, including black bread, blood fritters, and milky white herbs. Mm-mm. Okay. I mean, you gotta do what you gotta do. Right. Finally, she was ushered into the Sanctum Regdom, and the eleven elders retired, leaving her alone with the idol of Baphomet. Vaughn told Lucifer she thought it unfortunate the way his worshippers portrayed him since his idols were often so ugly. A strange heat filled the That's room. That's rude. Right? But it, it, this works for... This, good, this gets him going. So, okay. a strange heat fills the room. There's the sound of thunder. Spirits flit through the room. Baphomet vanishes and is replaced by Lucifer on a throne of diamonds. Oh, hell yeah. The eleven prime chiefs return, our elder, you know, Freemasons who had left so that she could have some alone time, and Lucifer declares Diana his grand priestess to them. Instantly, she's transported to a spirit world where she meets Asmodeus, her favorite demon. Uh, So you get to meet your favorite demon, and he serves her as guide as she watches the armies of Lucifer and Adonia do battle at the gates of Eden. Wow. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, That's honestly a, a dream scenario for me. It's a big day. Yeah. Big day. In 1896, Arthur Edward Waite, uh, who's a very prominent uh, cult revival 
character. You're familiar with him, right, Olivia? His name sounds really familiar. He commissioned the creation of the first uh, tarot cards and was... Uh, oh, part- yeah, I have that deck. That's yeah. why. And Got it. largely responsible for their... Des- well, not largely. He was partially responsible for their design and, and all. Um, yeah. But but he, he, he wrote a lot on occultism. Uh, he, he was one of the most literate members of the Golden Dawn, uh, and he was a historian of occultism. Published uh, He published a lengthy tract, actually, criticizing the various claims made by Leo Taxil and Diana Vaughn. It yeah. seemed to wait that Vaughn was too much to be believed. Wait for it. And he was right. Oh. On the 19th of April, 1897, Leo Taxil called a press conference at which he promised to introduce the media to Diana Vaughn. But when the press arrived, Taxil was alone. And he proceeded to give one of the most bizarre confessions in the history of occult confessions. Toxiel took the Pope's encyclical against the Masons as a prime opportunity for one of the most elaborate practical jokes in modern history. He was so secretive about the prank that at first he didn't even tell his wife. After all of his anti-Catholic rhetoric, he preferred that his friends and family think he was going crazy, which, when you think of all the work he did and all the effort that went into this prank, he kind of was a little crazy. He was not, four volumes, he was not especially annoyed about his separation from the Masons, describing his conflict with the two men in the order as a little row that he more or less laughed off and used to make it seem as though he had been deeply offended enough to speak out against them. Remember, so he, he, he claimed that he'd had an argument in his own order, and that's why he was writing these anti-Mason books. But the real reason he was writing them is because he knew Leo XIII was, had a hard-on for, you know, bashing the Masons. So he was like, this is my chance. I can pretend that this was a big deal to me and that I was in on all these secrets and I can lay out this whole plot. Let's hear from Toxiel. I had found out that a certain number of Catholics strongly believed that the name Grand Architect of the Universe, adopted by Freemasonry to designate the Supreme Being without relating it to the particular way of any specific religion, that this name, as I say, is used in fact to skillfully conceal Master Lucifer, or Satan, the Devil. Now, the tree of contemporary Luciferianism began to grow and I gave it all my care for a few more years. Then, I rewrote one of my books, introducing a Palladian ritual in it, allegedly obtained in communication, but in fact was prettily fabricated by me from beginning to end. He pulled wow. in... <laughs> that's crazy. Right? He pulled in two Confederates who served as characters in his books, witnesses to the Masonic Palladian rituals he described. One was a childhood friend, a ship's doctor who was anxious to believe all of Toxiel's stories about the Masons' evil ways. Toxiel wrote the doctor letters as Sophia Walder, a grand mistress of Paladinism. He offered to let the doctor meet Sophia, and finally, when the doctor met him, he gave up the joke and told the doctor the truth. The doctor oh. thought it was hilarious... And agreed. Well, that's good. To, right. He could have gone the other way. Yeah. Challenged him to a duel. He thought it was hilarious and agreed to help as a co-conspirator. Wow. Then came Diana Vaughn, the last member of the team. Finally, I convinced Miss Vaughn to become my accomplice for the final success of my hoax. 
I drew a fixed agreement with her, 150 francs per month for typing manuscripts as well as for letters which should be copied by hand. It goes without saying that should trips be necessary, all her expenses would be defrayed. But she never accepted any money as a gift. In fact, she enjoyed the prank quite a lot and took a liking to it. Corresponding with bishops, cardinals, receiving letters from the private secretary of the sovereign pontiff, telling them fairy tales, informing the Vatican about the dark plots of Luciferians, all this set her in an inexpressible gaiety. She thanked me for associating her with this huge prank. Had she possessed the great wealth we attributed to her to make her prestige greater, she would have never accepted the price agreed for her collaboration, and further, she would have paid for all the costs wholeheartedly. Albert Pike was only ever a Grand Master of the Scottish Rite, never anything like a Luciferian Pope. Meeting Lucifer in person every Friday at 3pm as Toxiel described. The hoax kicked off a series of books by writers anxious to believe in and corroborate the Masonic conspiracy. These then became Lady Queenborough's primary sources in constructing her Luciferian Masonic plot. But, uh-huh. you see, so it's just like a terrible, terrible game of telephone. Toxiel makes all this stuff up to, you know, pull a fast one on the Pope and make him look ridiculous, which is hilarious and why I love this guy. He yeah. was so committed. He wrote extensively. Like, he was all in on this, like, essentially incredibly elaborate early form of performance art. You'd have to be all in. But then after he, like, I think he imagined that when he came out and said, this is all a hoax, that would be the end of it. But the truth of the matter is, in the midst of him writing all these books, other people are reading his books and like, oh, this is this is so true. I'm going to write my own take on this. That's crazy. And a literature grows up around this idea. And yeah. you fast forward 20 years and a little Edith Star Miller is sitting in her kitchen worrying whether her servants are stealing from her and she picks up this book and she says oh wow there's a secret masonic plot i had no idea because it seems that there is if you don't do any further research on it but it's all based on a hoax yeah ouch in order to accept these stories as true queenborough had to ignore toxiel's elaborate confession proving that the whole story had been invented for the sole purpose of embarrassing the pope all right, let's. We're at my analysis portion of today's discussion. Taken together, Hislop, Queenborough, and Webster treat their conspiracy narratives like they're pl- panning for gold. Any piece of any history or story that fits their narrative is carefully collected and preserved. The things that don't fit their argument fall through the sifter and disappear back into the creek bed. Unlike more academic historians and scholars, yours truly, they don't waste any time on addressing counter arguments to their narratives. They may or may not be aware of them, but their grand narratives are so significant that counterpoints shrink down to nothing in their mighty shadow. The grand narrative is a hallmark of what I'd call modernist and what you might prefer to call old-school conspiracy theory. These are the first round of American and British stories that would go on to shape generations of conspiracy believers, with or without their knowledge. I I bet if we have conspiracy theorists tuning in, this is the first they're hearing the names Edith Star Miller, Lady Queenborough, and Hislop, Alexander Hislop. But the, the, the you don't have modern conspiracy theory without them. That just speaks volumes to to the way this all functions. You you don't dig under the surface of these things. You just operate on the surface. If we've learned anything today, it's that conspiracy theorists aren't particularly bothered about vetting their sources. 
And so these ideas, regardless of how easily discredited they are, persist in the echo chamber of conspiracy theorizing. It's as if the modern conspiracy theorist prefers to skip along the surface of things rather than plumb even the shallowest pool for fear that they might find something that contradicts what they'd rather believe. This is a postmodernist take, a take that privileges subjective personal belief over intersubjective agreement. Postmodern conspiracy of the second part of the 20th century is actually the next stop on our tour. So I'm going to leave us there uh, with something to look forward to. We'll be analyzing how we move into this postmodern world uh, going forward with our next episode on John Todd and the Illuminati witch cult. Whew. Yeah, that was a lot, but that was cool. That was fun. Thanks. I enjoyed it. It was a wild ride, wasn't it? Yeah. It really was. It just makes you think, like, what if that happened, but today? The Toxiel hoax? <laughs> like, that's that would be the next step up. I think it might be happening in some cases. I, I, I mean, if, if we have folks like Alex Jones, for example, who... That's, yeah. He's highly motivated to sell pills, right? Does he actually believe all the things he says? I, I think that he is, more, he, the things he says are more about drawing an audience and he doesn't really care whether he personally believes them or not. The important thing is to get them to listen so that he can then, you know, what, what does he shill? Silver water or something? Or something. Dude, I don't even know. I, I, I think, I don't know. I think oh, anyone that follows Alex Jones would fight with you there, but. Well, yeah, but come on. No, I'm with you. I think part of it has to be even like even if, if if half of it is just like exaggerated over the top. I mean, it's like how we would talk about with like a lot of the spiritualists, you know, they would lie to prove the point of truth. Yeah. So. Yeah. We <laughs> on this particular podcast, I think we have a stronger leg to stand on. I understand we have a much smaller audience than Alex Jones. But yeah. we are not selling any products. Uh, no. We, are we don't not. even have ads. No, right? <laughs> we, we have no corporate sponsorship. We, we have, you know, there's no, there's no, we have patrons. We're supported by our own listeners. This is a community that supports itself. So we don't have any incentive to say anything other than what we find and believe to be true based on our research. Alex Jones is not that way. He could be hoaxing us, and he would have an incentive to do so. So, I I don't know. I don't know. Hello. You have reached the Alchemical Actors Hermetic Hotline. At the moment, the hotline has gone cold. If you are having a hermetic emergency, please hang up and DM us on Instagram. Otherwise, please leave a message at the sound of the tone. Dr. Rob, church secrets here. You know, it just struck me while I was listening here that it's almost as if you want us ramrodding you with our holy rods on the account of you keep sending us advance audio of your unholier-than-us noise-shaped vaguely into what we here at Church Secrets wouldn't call a podcast. You want to know what I've got to say about the Catholics? Same thing as I say about the Masons. Heathens! Head-worshipping, frog-licking, sex-orgy heathens! What do you think of that? Well, I know you can't respond because this is an answering machine, but if you could, what do you think of that? Let's do the sources. 
The sources today include The Two Babylons, colon, Papal Worship, Proved to be the Worship of Nimrod and His Wife by Alexander Hislop. The Two Babylons by Ralph Woodrow for the Christian Research Institute. Also, The Confession of Leo Taxil, translated from La Frondeur uh, of 20, 25th of April, 1897. That translation is by Alain Bernheim and A. William Sami. Also, Eric Sirajski, uh, reprinted from the Transactions of the Scottish Rite Research Society, Volume 5, 1966. Nin- oh, sorry, 1996. I like to go, now that I'm going to put them at the end, I feel like I can say, Occult Theocracy by Edith Starr Miller, Lady Queenborough, uh, Devil Worship in France by A.E. Waite, Lady Queenborough, uh, Edith Starr Miller at freemasonry.bcy.ca, Behold a Pale Horse by Mil- Milton William Cooper. Like, look at that. This is research, man. We are, there are a lot of sources here. And they're primary sources. Like, we're, I, I'm in the primary yeah. sources. Uh, and, and that's where you get the truth. Okay. We got to talk about a, uh, 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 excellent uh, comment we had on, on, oh, on the iTunes. Oh, is this the love of my life? Yeah, let's gong on into the Order of Confessors. Uh, all right, Olivia, this is at Chewbacca. Yes, Chewbacca, the love of my life. At Chewbacca, uh, who we are lulling to sleep every night. At Chewbacca had a dream that At Chewbacca was actually doing a live episode for us on giant spiky chairs. Okay. We, we fill Chewbacca with rage and awe. Uh, which apparently is a very pleasant feeling for Chewbacca uh, because we got 13 out of 10 stars and uh, Chewbacca offered us some blessings. Uh, <laughs> uh, again, in times of economic hardship, uh, if you can't uh, you know, give a, give a dollar, a couple dollars, five dollars on the Patreon, a review would be much appreciated. Uh, we, we, are, yeah. uh, we are periodically trolled. Uh, this is a podcast that... Uh, has has a strong perspective and does have a lot of uh, personality. Individual opinions. I, 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 that's what people have complained about, right? I don't understand that. Was, that. that was the quote. I'm, I'm just direct quoting yeah. from memory. So, so there are people who don't like the personality of the podcast. I, I guess I see individual opinions, but we certainly we do our research and we couch the research as research. Um, we're not trying to distort that. And everybody has a perspective on what they're talking about. So anyway, if, if this yeah. is your bag, baby, then hop on and, and just say a few words about us because that helps other people find us. Sometimes you'll see, like if somebody writes a nasty review, that might be the first thing you see under our podcast. You won't notice that we have a hundred some odd yeah. positive ones. Uh, and you'll be like, oh, this, oh, that's a shame. I really wanted to listen to this, but it looks like it sucks. So uh, that person doesn't get to listen. So uh, for, for the good of the community, uh, if you have a minute, hop on, say a few words. Uh, uh, okay, let's let's bring it on home, Olivia. I hear, oh God, this is so lonely. Like, what am I even adjourning? Just like, you and, you and me. You're adjourning the two of us. All right. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. That's sad now. I'm sad because <laughs> we're not together doing anything. When we get a third person on, that might feel better. Ugh, Our okay. voices today uh, included, hey, these all these folks joined us on the episode. We had Lucy Bond in Woo! the role of Edith Star Miller, Sean Priest giving us the Reverend Alexander Hislop. Andrew Mims was playing a couple of parts for us, including Cooper at the start, and Brandon Walls was our Leo Taxil. Coming up, 
On Occult Confessions, as I mentioned, we're going to be doing the story of John Todd. Uh, this is a fascinating story that I, I went uh, deep into. I, I dug deep on John Todd, uh, who uh, was, just to give you a thumbnail, he was a, a pagan, a member of the Wiccan community in the 1960s and 70s, uh, but also straddled and converted to fundamentalist Christianity and actually moved back and forth between being a pagan uh, anti-Christian pagan and an anti-pagan fundamentalist Christian. Interesting. Uh, and he, it, I, I can't say this with certainty, but he is one of the first uh, people in conspiracy, the occult conspiracy literature, which is what I've been focusing on this whole series, who speaks from a first-person perspective. So, you know, Hislop and, and Queenborough and all these folks are speaking from a third person, right? They're viewing these movements and talking about them from the sort of bird's eye view. But Todd is one of the first people to say, I lived it. I experienced it. I was at these rituals. These things happened to me. Uh, So we're actually going to give two episodes to John Todd. Uh, So that's, that's, it's coming up. Uh, I think you're going to be fascinated by it. um, And uh, I am anyway. All right. So that's it. It sounds interesting. That's it for today. Well, that's, that's it. All right. We'll catch you guys next time. We're back. We're back, baby. We're back. And we will catch you at our next episode. See ya.